For more information about the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room theme music composed and performed by Ben Shive. Welcome to The Rabbit Room. I'm Andrew Peterson. For the next several episodes of The Rabbit Room podcast, leading up to Easter Sunday, we are honored to present a series of sermons by Pastor Russ Ramsey of Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. Russ describes them as a sermon series focused on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, examining the validity of Jesus' claim that no one would take his life from him, but that he'd lay it down of his own accord and take it up again on the third day. This next sermon is titled, Preparation. So we're shifting our focus now to an event which seems to have occurred on Wednesday. And we don't find Jesus in the temple here, but instead he's he's in Bethany. He's not in the city right now. He's in Bethany at the home of a man named Simon the leper. And we see a bit of a different side of Jesus in this text than we've been seeing so far. And so let's look at it. I would invite all who are able to stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, all-sufficient word, Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16. I shall be reading from this Bible which was presented to me by this congregation. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray once more. Father, the narrative arc of these last several days has been one that has been filled with tension. But even in reading this text, it comes nowhere close to the tension that must have been in this room in Simon the leper's house as Jesus was there with friends and with his disciples, which included Judas. Lord, would you give us eyes to see? Would you open our hearts that we might consider how we imitate Judas? And would you give us eyes to see how we might imitate this woman with this flask of perfume? And Lord, would you help us see what it means to imitate you? Father, I thank you 
that though no one took your life from you, you did lay it down. As horrible as the details are, as gruesome as the experience was, I thank you, Lord, that the significance and the meaning and the purpose of your offering yourself up unto death and rising from the grave was so that I could know my Savior, so that I could be restored to a relationship with God that I was otherwise just guilty and hopeless in recovering in any way. Thank you for rescuing your people from ourselves and our tendency to betray and to seek ways to be rid of you. Thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, these past several days, there's been a rush of tension and anger for Jesus' opponents and a steady, unflinching resolve for Jesus. He's been constantly on the move. He's been juggling his time between both sides of the Kidron Valley, and words have been his currency. At least what we're given in the scriptures, just words, words, words. He's been talking. He's been arguing. He's been spending piles of words, opposing the self-righteous, preparing his disciples for what he has been telling them for a while now, what he began telling them long before this verse that comes from Matthew 16, which is ten full chapters before what we just read. Jesus saying that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is how specific he was being months prior to him being here. And so he's been a flurry of activity. But in our text here, he's still. We find him in one place. He's not on the hot seat right now. He's just with friends. He's enjoying company. He's in the, man, in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And it just kind of makes me wonder, what if we were known for what was wrong with us? What if that was your name? So-and-so, the pornography addict. So-and-so, the embezzler. So-and-so, the cancer patient. So-and-so, you name it, fill in the blank. Simon was a leper. He probably wasn't suffering under the leprosy at the moment, but he was Simon the leper for the rest of his days. That's just who he was. And I have to think, it's got to be a little liberating to be known, just known by what's messed up. Because you don't have to hide. You don't have to apologize. If you want to know me, know this. I need mercy. I need healing. I need help. It's possible. I like to think about this. I don't know. It's possible he was healed of his leprosy by Jesus. It's possible that this is the reason that they're friends. It's possible, I guess, that he was the one who came back when the other nine didn't. It's possible. I don't know. I don't know. But I like to think that there was some connection between Jesus and Simon the leper that probably had at least something to do with his leprosy. 
if nothing else, that there was a rabbi who would say, I still want to be in your house and I still want to be your friend. Seems like they're having a meal in this text and that they're settled in for this time of conversation. And you have to think it's, it's probably a warm time. It's probably friendly. It's probably one where it's people who like each other gathered together in the room, but it's probably also sober. Jesus' disciples are, are starting to really understand that Jesus is about to be arrested and that he's probably going to be executed. They're connecting the dots and they all have this sense that time is winding down. As they're there, a woman with an alabaster flask approaches Jesus. Matthew doesn't tell us her name, but we not only know who she is, we also know a little something about this flask of ointment that she has with her. In John's Gospel, we learn this woman is Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister, Martha's sister. That's who she is. And John's Gospel also suggests that the reason she had this perfume in this alabaster flask was because she was saving it for the occasion of Jesus' death, that it was for him, for his burial. There's another occasion in Scripture. I know some of you are thinking, wait, that's not how I remember the story. There's another occasion of this earlier on. John has it, I think, in maybe John 7. I forget exactly where it is, where another instance like this happens. It's a different woman, but she's anointing Jesus and she's wiping his feet with her hair. But this is Mary of Bethany, and she's here. And she begins to pour this perfume on Jesus. And I want us to imagine this, okay? Because this is significant. This is a detail that has just got my mind racing. She's pouring this perfume on Jesus' head and feet. Mark's gospel tells us that she did this by breaking the container. It was a sealed container. She broke it. And with this action of breaking the flask, there's no turning back. What that means, to put it in our terms is this flask of perfume was worth about a year's wage. A year's wage. So, breaking that flask open was like popping the cork on a $50,000 bottle of champagne. That's what that was like. What that tells us, she's not acting on a whim. She was there, deliberately to offer Jesus the most precious possession she had. What drove her? I think that she was giving to Jesus her most valuable possession because she was expressing that she knew that he was giving something to her too. And she wanted to match it as best as she could. What she gave to him was a response to what he was giving and had given to her. And she would have had an inside track in this too because she's Lazarus' sister. He had already given her the life of her brother. And he had told these sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. So there she is in the moment 
with $50,000 worth of ointment. And she commits, breaks it, and starts to pour it on Jesus. And the disciples react like men, like many men do. They consider the monetary value of the perfume and they regard it as though she might as well have been burning a year's wage in a bread oven. That's their response. But when they say it, they dress it up, don't they? In the noble auspices of a concern for the poor. Think of the poor people who could have benefited from the sale of this perfume. But Jesus comes to her aid. What she is doing, he tells them, is beautiful. And in that statement, brothers and sisters, we are given an amazing doctrinal principle. Think about this. Though the perfume could have been sold for a year's wages, what is perfume for? What is it for? Is this merely a commodity that Mary is supposed to hold on to in the event that she needs to cash it in? Is this how God would expect her to regard this valuable resource? Apparently not. Perfume is meant to be spilled out and evaporated until it is gone in order that it might fill a room with its beautiful and startling aroma. And as the scent of this perfume electrifies the senses of everyone there, Jesus says her use of this perfume is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now some of us are, men and women alike, some of us are so utilitarian with everything in our lives that we only want to know what a thing can be bought or sold or used for. We don't have a place for beautiful things unless they also have another purpose as well. And so we don't watch the sunset. We don't listen to music. We don't read great books. We don't drink fine wine. We don't go to art museums because we can't measure really what it gets us in the end. I am not telling you to drink wine and I am not telling you to spend the afternoon at the art museum but I am raising a question about your doctrine of God and it is this do you believe in a God who is strictly utilitarian measuring everything between you in terms of what it costs you and what it gains him everything in creation testifies to a creator who delights in beauty for beauty's sake so many things that are beautiful did not need to be beautiful but they are and God opted to make them that way he opted to make autumn a season that is saturated with color and with change he didn't have to make the setting sun the spectacle that it is but he did why why did he do that why does he keep doing stuff like that? One reason must be because beauty pleases the maker. And another must be in order to arrest us by our senses when we're otherwise just plodding along with our heads down learning to live within the economy of pragmatism. I thank God 
for arresting our senses. Mary does something that is beautiful. And Jesus wants his disciples to wake up from their pragmatism and see it and see that it is beautiful. What is she doing? She's preparing him for his burial, Jesus says. Wow. It's not just, look, she's being generous. You shouldn't bother her because she's being generous. He's saying, it's beautiful what she's doing and you shouldn't bother her because she's preparing this body to be laid in a grave. Jesus sees what she's doing as a kindness and an honor to him. And he returns this honor in a way that's just awesome. He says, history will never forget what she's done as long as the gospel is proclaimed. Her bit here will be included and it'll be remembered. And obviously, it has been because here we are remembering what it is that she had done do you know what this act of gratitude from Mary to Jesus has been recorded in over 150 languages around the world for over 200 centuries J.C. Ryle makes this comment he said the speeches of parliamentary orators the exploits of warriors, the works of poets and painters will not be mentioned on that day of God's coming kingdom. But the least work that the weakest Christian has done for Christ or his members will be found written in a book of everlasting remembrance. That is awesome. Now, if we are called to remember what it is that she has done, I want to ask you to remember a little bit more than just the pragmatic details of the story that a woman comes in and pours $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. And I want us to think about what that means. Jesus is now seeing and placing everything in the context of his pending death. He'd spent the day before on Tuesday consoling his disciples, to help them when he was gone and now here he's in this intimate setting with his dear friends who have their quirks and their flaws and what is happening the scent of redemption is filling the room and it's covering Christ it's covering him this is probably an oil-based perfume that was strong and by its value, it was probably something that was only used by very wealthy people or royalty. It was not a common scent. Here's the detail that just blew my mind this week. Presuming Jesus did not take a very serious bath between this Wednesday late afternoon, early evening, and the next night when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, this scent is all over him throughout the Passion, everywhere he goes. He goes into the upper room with the disciples and it fills the room there. He goes across the Kidron Valley into the 
Mount of Olives, and he prays in his pores open, releasing sweat and blood, activating the scent again. He's arrested and he's taken into Pilate's court and he's flogged with the cat of nine tails. And it invigorates the scent once more. And it stays on him and it lingers where he's been until he's placed in his tomb and it's there too. She's preparing me for my burial. I just think that there's something profoundly gracious about Jesus letting her, doing the, letting her do this and correcting the disciples and saying what she's doing is going to be remembered every time you are in the presence of kings and councils and you smell this, you're going to think of me. At the end of this text, Matthew he takes up another important item, and that is Judas' exasperated act of betrayal. For three years now, Judas has been a follower of Jesus, one of the twelve disciples. His job has been to keep the common purse. He stole from it regularly, John tells us. Judas was a man who was wired to determine what a thing is worth and to function within that economy. And perhaps when he realized Jesus wasn't the warlike king that he was looking for, he realized that his association with Jesus wasn't really going to bring any notoriety, but instead only suffering. Maybe something clicked in his mind that night as he watched Mary anoint Jesus with this perfume of such a high street value, but was now just gone. Maybe as that perfume dripped from Jesus' beard to the floor, Judas saw his life in those drops in the very act of being wasted. And so he makes his way across the valley to Jerusalem, this time on his own and not with Jesus and the other disciples because he wants to have a very different meeting with the chief priests than the ones Jesus had been having up till then. How much will you give me? if I hand him over. What makes this so chilling is that they had an answer to that question. 30 pieces of silver, about four months wages, and Judas took it. He took it. This is what Jesus' life and Judas' betrayal of him added up to. About a third of what Mary's perfume was worth. Enough to get him through the winter. You get the sense that Judas was difficult to write about. Matthew's words, the other gospel writers, their words are terse, like a legal brief in which you'd expect Judas to be coldly referred to as Mr. Iscariot if people talked that way back then. Some people today want to paint Judas in a sympathetic light as though he was somehow important to the process of accomplishing our salvation, arguing that Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross if it wasn't for Judas, salvation has been helped along by Judas. Scripture challenges us on this point. You're not going to find a shred of sympathy for the man. You won't. Instead, you're going to find the opposite. John says in his gospel that Judas was a man who was doomed to destruction. 
Jesus himself says this of Judas. He says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. What Judas did was miserable from beginning to end. From the cloak and dagger sleeking into the counsel of those who named this price to his later remorse when he gave the money back as though it was a toxin that was liquefying his soul to his horrible, gruesome, self-inflicted death later that week. The words on Judas are few, but they're powerful. They're powerful because they present us with this. They present us with a man who is destined to do the unthinkable for a negligible reward, which he does without a second thought. They present a man who spent years in the company of Christ and his disciples and yet never loved Jesus. They present the picture of a man who is so close to Christ and lost. These words are sobering because they could be a picture of any one of us in this room and no one else would know it. No one. Is your back turned on Jesus? Are there 30 pieces of silver jingling around deep inside your soul right now? Have you settled on a price that you are willing to accept in exchange for a life that is rid of Him? Are you seeking an opportunity even now to betray Him? You may be thinking, how dare you? I am nothing like Judas. This text reminds us of something. And what it reminds us of is your relationship with Jesus is not a game. It's not. And but for the grace of God, we are all of us vastly more like Judas than we are like Jesus. Every one of us. There are two responses that Jesus receives in this text. One from someone who is giving everything that she has just to be close to him. And another who is seeking to make a profit, hoping to be rid of him. There's Judas who looks over Jesus, who cuts his loss to his ultimate destruction. But then there's Mary who sees him. She sees Jesus. She plums the depth of his reason for being there. And in him she finds life. And she loves what she sees because she knows that he has come to honor her by giving himself for her salvation. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? This has been episode 14 of the Rabbit Room Podcast, produced at the Warren outside of Nashville, Tennessee.